Job 42, God's reading this evening. Though we will be focusing only on verses 1 through 6, we'll read verses 1 through 9 just for a bit of context. So Job, chapter 42, 1 through 9. God's word, though the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So how good are you at admitting your ignorance? Is it hard for you to say, I don't know? Well, this kind of depends. If you don't care about the topic, not knowing can be your boast. Don't know, don't care. Or if the question is completely out of your field, it's no biggie not to know. If you're an accountant, your unfamiliarity with astrophysics is no mark on you. Though at other times, saying I don't know can be like birthing a piano sideways. For we like to have our answers. It makes us feel good to be known as smart or well-informed. Intelligence is a big part of our ego. Thus often, we will just make something up or lie before we admit ignorance. This is kind of the going rate between YouTube influencers and podcast gurus. They'll pontificate as experts, but regularly know very little. Besides, not knowing can make us feel insecure. It's annoying to us. We feel like we have no anchor. Also, if we don't understand, we have to rely on others. And often we prefer not to do this. Well, as this behemoth of a book of Job draws to a close, it leaves us with a large, I don't know. And yet, where at first we find this as unsatisfactory and disappointing, upon deeper reflection, this I don't know brings us a marvelous peace. So the Lord has rested his case Out of the storm of his glory, God delivered two long orations about the mysterious wonders of his creation and the goodness of his governance. 
Now, Job was permitted a brief reaction back in chapter 40, where he simply put his hand on his mouth. But now that the Lord has completed his words, Job is given an open stage and a hot mic, especially after the scary and marvelous description of Leviathan, how then is Job going to respond? He's been dwarfed by behemoth and Leviathan, and even more, by Yahweh. So what words could possibly be suitable? Well, Job does not have many, but he does have a few. How well chosen, though, are these brief final words? And the first syllable to squeak through his lips is, I know. Job asserts his knowledge, which is an interesting way to open. For as you'll recall, knowledge has been a hot topic in this long debate between the friends. This is particularly the case as knowledge can be a synonym with wisdom, and it's definitely a key element of it. Thus, each friend claimed to have knowledge. They've all postured themselves as being wise. Of course, the friend's knowledge proved to be not very smart, more arrogant than accurate. And so for Job to file his last words about what he knows is an uneasy opening. But then he clarifies the content of his knowledge. I know you can do all things. No plan is impossible for you, O Lord. Job confesses his conviction in God's omnipotence. Yahweh can do everything, nothing is beyond him. No act is too heavy, no problem too difficult, no detail too small. And pairing with what God can do uh, is his purpose and planning, and this adds up to wisdom. To design a plan and to do it flawlessly is the essence of wisdom. Thus, for Job to declare that Yahweh, that he knows Yahweh can do everything and that no plan is impossible, this means Yahweh is the supremely wise one. And to cite the source of Job's knowledge, Job now quotes God. The first part of verse 3 here is a citation of what Yahweh said back in chapter 8, verse 38, verse 2. He said, Who is this? that obscures counsel without knowledge. Now, counsel is a synonym with purpose, and God's counsel is his providential plan, whereby he created and sustains the universe. And it was God's plan that troubled Job so. How could he suffer for nothing? This has been the issue. Something must be wrong with the Lord's plan for the most upright Job to be in agony like the worst sinner. You'll remember Job filed complaints against the Lord's purpose. He was sure that some error resided in the Lord's counsel. But now Job has arrived at a truer knowledge. Yahweh can do all. No plan is impossible for him. No error, no impossibility belongs to the Lord and his purpose. Yet where does this newfound clarity come from? Well, the whole of Yahweh's speeches teaches it, but it's especially this last part on Leviathan where it smacks Job in the face. For remember, Job's issue was how could the evil of his torment comply with the righteousness of his character? 
such a mixture of good and evil should not be. And yet in Leviathan, we see the arch enemy of God and his people being presented as a playful creature of God's good ocean. In part, Yahweh demythologizes Leviathan to reveal that he can bring good from evil. He can use evil for good. Well, if the Lord can do this with Leviathan, how much more with Job? The evil of his misery is not contradictory with the integrity of his uprightness. For us, good and evil are like oil and vinegar. They don't mix. But in the Lord's wisdom, he can emulsify them for grander and more marvelous purposes. Thus note the conclusion that Job draws from this knowledge about God's omnipotence. He says, I uttered what I did not understand, marvels too wonderful me to, for me that I did not know. Now verses 2 and 3 here are a mini paragraph. And the first word is, I don't know, or I know, and the last word is, I don't know. Thus, Job knows that he does not know. He's come to understand his ignorance, just how much he doesn't understand. Indeed, the word for wonders here has the connotation of being beyond comprehension. The Lord's ways are inscrutable. They exceed what we can understand. They're too complex for our little brains. Job may know in part, but he cannot know fully. Job's fresh appreciation for Yahweh's wise omnipotence impresses upon him the massiveness of his own ignorance. After all that Job has said over these 40 chapters, he concludes with this, I don't know. Beats me, not a clue. Job has had so many questions that he had to have the answers to. But now he finishes with, I don't know. And yet this admission of ignorance is the first triumph of Job's faith. Yes, we should not be annoyed by his ignorance, but we ought to find wisdom and faith in it. How is this? Well, knowledge, as you know, is a key element to faith. You cannot have faith without knowledge, for you cannot trust in what you do not know. Nevertheless, faith is more than just knowledge. For faith continues to trust even when knowledge reaches its limits. Thus Job knows the character and the glory of God's omnipotence, but the wonders of his plan are outside of his comprehension. Job's faith knows God's perfection, but it cannot fully understand his purpose. And yet he still trusts in the Lord. This is in no way anti-intellectual, nor does it pit knowledge against faith as opposing forces. No, instead, it is resting on the Lord to rule, even when his ways exceed our ability or our allotment. For the Lord just doesn't tell us everything about his plans and his purposes. But what he does reveal to us is sufficient for us to trust in him even amid all the unknowns of life. 
Therefore, this admission of ignorance is a wonderful triumph of a humble faith. Job submits to the Lord by not or by knowing what he does not know. With this, any pride in Job has been humbled. As you'll remember, Job has struggled with being too big for his breeches. His cocky attitude, though, has now been corrected. He bends the knee to trust in the Lord, especially as he knows not. This is kind of like a child trusting her dad. The kid may not know the dad's plans for vacation, but it's okay because she trusts in him. And so with peaceful ignorance, Job cuddles up upon the lap of the Lord. All is well, for he trusts in the all-powerful Yahweh, whose plans are too wonderful. The words, I don't know, have never been so noble, so believing. And yet, this is only the first part of Job's conclusion. He delivers a two-part conclusion And for his second half, he again quotes the Lord in verse 4. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now this is pulled from 38 verse 3 and 40 verse 7. And this line recalls how God questioned Job and how he came up empty on so many of the questions. But it also clarifies that the Lord met Job in direct confrontation. Out of the tempest, the Lord personally interacted with Job in physical time and place. No mediator stood between the two of them. God did not answer Job through a prophet or a priest. He didn't appear to Job in some murky dream or vision. But Yahweh stood in the presence of Job. And it is this face-to-face encounter that Job capitalizes upon. Thus he says, I have heard you with my own ears. The very ear of Job listened to the pure voice of the Almighty. And such a hearing has been what Job has ached for, but also what he despaired of ever experiencing. Job wished for a direct hearing with God numerous times, and yet he resolved that it was not possible. In chapter 9, Job said that God would not answer him. He even confessed that he did not believe that the Lord would hear him and speak. Hearing the Lord himself was a pipe dream to Job, wishful thinking. But this fool's hope of Job came to be. God did hear, and the Lord did speak. And Job got to hear it with his ears. This acknowledges that Yahweh has answered Job's prayers and pleas. Now, his friends said this was impossible. God would never do this for Job. Job wanted it, but despaired of it ever coming to be. But now it has happened. God spoke. Job heard. And it gets better. For Job did not just listen, but he saw. Now my eyes have seen you. Job saw the living God with his own eyes. No foe gets to see God. No sinner lays an eye upon the Lord and lives to tell about it. But Job saw Yahweh and lived. 
Now again, this, this too was the desire of Job. He longed for a court case before the face of God, but this desire was also his despair. He didn't think it was possible. He was despondent about this prayer request. Hence, Job lamented of seeing God. He said, again in chapter 9, that God would pass by him and he would never see him. However, this vision of God links directly to one of Job's expressions of hope. In chapter 19, Job asserted that his Redeemer lives and that he would see God without his flesh. With his own eyes, he would behold God. Now here in chapter 19, Job's Redeemer is aligned with the Lord, and he was sure of, a see, sure of seeing his redeeming God. However, in chapter 19, this visual encounter with God was set in some sort of post-mortem existence. After death, he would see God. But now Job admits that this wish has been granted, and not in death, but in life. Job beheld the Lord in this present life with the eyes of his flesh. The Lord then has again answered Job's prayer, even in ways beyond Job ever guessed. And for Job to see the Lord is for him to behold him as Redeemer. These closing speeches of the Lord is him acting as the Redeemer of Job. And it's this truth that yields the fruit of Job's second conclusion, verse 6. Now, sadly, this climactic verse of Job's final words, in many ways the entire book, has been plagued with controversy and bad translation and the ESV misses the mark. The first part of verse 6 reads literally, I reject. Now this word never has a reflexive meaning, so it cannot mean to despise myself. Instead, it needs an object, you reject something. But Job leaves the object blank. We have to supply it from context. So what does Job reject? Well, the explicit topic of verse 5 was meeting with God. And ever since chapter 9, this has been Job's constant demand. He must have a court case with God. He must meet with the Lord. So then what does Job reject here? He rejects his subpoena for, hearing, for a hearing with God. For this rejecting can also mean to recant, to dismiss. Thus, Job here recants. He rejects his petition for a court hearing to be vindicated. And this fits perfectly. Throughout the book, Job has filed a subpoena to summon God to court. In the tempest, Job heard and saw Yahweh as his redeemer, and so now he recants and withdraws his petition. The force of Job rejecting here is him quitting. He has been a dog with a bone to meet God in court, and yet now by seeing the Lord, the feistiness of Job has given up. He's calmed, satisfied, reconciled. And this judicial withdrawal of Job flows ideally 
into the second half of the verse. Now, the word here for repent can also mean to be comforted. And as you'll remember, comforting has been a pervasive theme of this book. The three friends showed up in chapter 2 to comfort Job in his agony on the ash heap. And yet, as their efforts ended up being just caustic criticisms, Job charged them as being worthless comforters, incompetent counselors. The comforting of Job has been a goal of this book. Thus, this word always means comforting in the book of Job, and it never means to repent. Next, it literally says, upon or concerning dust and ashes. And ashes and dust have been the embodiment of Job's torturous misery. He sat upon the ashes. Dust covered his skin. Job was moments away from the dust of death. And in chapter 31, Job said he resembled dust and ashes. The ashy dirt of of Job then was the concrete pain of his suffering for nothing. Likewise, to be comforted concerning, this is one of the regular biblical idioms for being consoled for grief. Therefore, this line rightly reads, I am comforted concerning dust and ashes. This is Job finding relief and solace for all his wretched affliction. The friends were incapable of comforting Job. Job couldn't cheer himself up. But now in the hands of the Lord, Job is comforted. He he has finally experienced peace and and consolation for his suffering for nothing. The balm of the Lord has soothed his soul with peace. Now the physical pain... And the sadness of the loss might not yet be over, but the heart of Job now is at rest, tranquil, calm. His soul is no longer agitated and turbulent to know why, to find an explanation, to be vindicated. But he's comforted in the Lord concerning all the misery of his dust and ashes. And this is the second triumph of faith for Job. After hearing and seeing the Lord, he can rest in God as his one comforter. And this second conclusion matches ideally with the first one. In humility, Job said, I don't know the incomprehensible wonders of God. And now he confesses, I am comforted for suffering in ignorance. Thus, Job holds ignorance in one hand and is suffering in the other, and he admits, it's okay. I know not why, but Yahweh's with me, and I am consoled. My tears are dry. This is faith at its best. This is faith saying, I don't understand it, but I'm at peace For I saw my Redeemer. God made me suffer, but he is not my foe. He is my beloved Lord. Thus Job's faith overcomes 
not by repenting of any specific sin, but by finding comfort in the God who made him miserable for nothing. In fact, if Job repented, this would diminish his faith. To repent would say, I am guilty and I deserve the suffering. This is a toddler faith. But to find comfort from God who agonized you for nothing, this is mature faith. Such trust and consolation rises to the level of loving God for nothing, which was the very test from the beginning. As you'll remember, the accuser said, Job loved God only for his money. Take away Job's wealth and God, or, and, and Job will curse God. Here, though, Job trusts in the Lord and is comforted by God even while being ignorant and still suffering. This is loving God not because he blesses us or because he doesn't bless us, but it's loving the Lord because of who he is in and of himself. So then, as Job recants and is comforted, the accuser falls defeated, and our Lord is glorified as victorious. Yahweh has brought honor to himself over the accuser through the humble faith of Job. And this is confirmed in the next few verses as the Lord said, Job spoke truthfully about him. And God lifted the face of Job. By such, the Lord approbates Job. He's pleased with Job's trust while not knowing and for being comforted, even without an explanation. Moreover, by the approval of Job's faith, it becomes clear how his faith embraces the cross of Christ from afar. For what is the object that Job's faith holds on to so tightly here? Well, one, it's the truth that God's ways are too wonderful us. It's the fact that God can do all things, but we fail to grasp his inscrutable plan. Two, it's the reality that in the presence of the most intense suffering comes the sweetest consolation. The best peace hails not from no agony, but through that very pain. And where do these two merge with the most harmony? The cross of Christ. No one understood a suffering Messiah. Peter rebuked Jesus for even talking about the cross. The crowds rejected Jesus for heading out to Golgotha. The holy son of God treated like a chief of sinners? This smells of impiety. There is no way that good and evil can mix in such a way. The holy Christ defiled by death, it just cannot be. The righteous Jesus executed as a curse and not for his sin? God can't do this. Moreover, then by the incomprehensible suffering of Christ the Lord provided us with our only true source of comfort. God reconciles us peacefully to himself by the very agony of the Son? How does this work? But this is exactly the only object of saving faith. 
we trust in the mysterious cross for our justification. We find comfort in the pains of Jesus. Our faith may not understand it all. There are spots of ignorance in our faith. And yet the cross of Christ is the power of salvation through faith alone. Now, of course, just because some matters of God's plan of salvation are incomprehensible, this does not mean that our faith is ill-informed. Indeed, the Lord has educated our faith better than Job's. In the gospel, we know that Jesus suffered not for his sins, but for ours. Our sins were imputed to him. Our depravities pierced his flesh. He had no sin, but Jesus didn't suffer for nothing, but he died for you. Jesus perished to appease the Father's wrath, to win justification and resurrection for us. Likewise, we are comforted by the agony of Jesus because he became like us. As our elder brother, Jesus took on our flesh and blood. He lived under the same sun as we do. As our high priest, Jesus was tempted and tried in all the same ways. He faced everything that you face and more. And yet he was without sin to be merciful and gracious to you. And as the pioneer of our salvation, Christ blazed the trail for us. He pulled the weeds, moved the the rocks, and smoothed the path for you into heaven. Hence, Christ is your ever-present aid and comfort. By the knowledge of Christ, you have a robust understanding of your Savior, his salvation, and your forever future. By the scriptures, your faith knows a great deal of God's glorious truths. But there are still things that we do not know, especially the daily providence of our lives. Why did that accident happen? Why did she have to die? How can one you love so dearly deny the faith? How come God won't answer this prayer? Indeed, we know about eternity, but we're ignorant of tomorrow. And in this ignorance, we are yet comforted. But how? By the Emmanuel presence of Christ. Job knew not why he suffered, but he saw God and he was consoled. So also we don't understand all our trials and afflictions But amid them, we know that Christ is with us, even to the end of the age. As our elder brother, priest, and pioneer, Jesus is with you through all the incomprehensible afflictions of life. Though we do not know why the pain, it is okay, for the love of Jesus is with us. We may not perceive all that the Father is doing, but we do know that Jesus Christ is ours, and so we are consoled concerning the dust and ashes of life. Thus, may we, may your faith be encouraged and instructed through Job here. May we always trust in our God who can do all things. And may your faith sit on the lap of Christ like a small child. Much is too wonderful us for us to grasp, 
but in the hands of your loving Savior, you can be assured and comforted that God is doing all things for his good or his glory and your good now and forever. Thus praise be to the Lord, our triune God. Praise to him for the things that we know and praise to him for the things we do not know. For when we do not know, the Lord is still with us and he will never forsake us. Amen.